You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, this is Robert Wright. One thing I like about the conversations I have here on The Wright Show is that they help me think and write. They've informed the books and many of the articles I've written over the past 15 years. Now, lately, most of my writing has been for my newsletter, the Non-Zero Newsletter. It covers the kinds of topics you see on the show. Politics, foreign policy, psychology, philosophy, spirituality, how to avoid the apocalypse, things like that. So if you enjoy The Right Show, chances are pretty good that you'll enjoy the newsletter. It's free, and all you have to do to get it is go to nonzero.org and sign up. So I suggest that you hit pause, go sign up, and then hit play. Thanks. Hi, Evan. Hi, Bob. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, thanks for being here. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Right Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Evan Thompson, professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia. Um, this is my second conversation with you on this platform. I, we uh, discussed a really fascinating book you wrote called Waking, Dreaming, Being some time ago. People can find that Um by Googling it. You're, you're also the co-author of a well-known book called The Embodied Mind, um, along with Francisco Varela and Eleanor Roche. And, th- and that may come up in, in the course of this conversation. Now, the, 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 which is going to be about your new book, Why I Am Not a Buddhist. That's what it looks like. Published by Yale University Press. Very interesting book. Um, Interesting to me, for one thing, because you spend a certain amount of it uh, critiquing, uh, and it's fair to say criticizing, I think, my book, Why Buddhism is True. Um, so I took a special interest in it. Um, I'm going to uh, work at being not too self-indulgent in the course of this conversation, and I'm going to try not to spend the entire conversation on like petty grievances about whether you characterize me accurately or whether your criticisms are valid. Can't guarantee it. I did meditate this morning, but as you that's know, okay. that's, <laughs> that's no guarantee All of good. anything. Um, so what I, All what good. I do want to do is, uh, I want to let the argument you're making in your book unfold, uh, more or less organically and focus on that. And then when a part of your argument is relevant, to something you say about my book, I may, you know, interject that, address that issue, but otherwise, um, try to get through your argument, and then at the end of, of that, when we've given that um, pretty pretty thorough um, assessment, uh, may, may, if I have big issues left over that I want to address in terms of things you said about my book, then I then then maybe if we have time, I'll do that. Um, in any event, I, I think, you know, there's, uh, the, my promotional instincts tell me I should encourage people who enjoy disagreement to stay tuned because even if we don't get to that right away, um, we will eventually. Um, now, I, I think before we get into your argument, maybe we should get into your biography a little bit. You do that in the book because it's actually kind of relevant to your attitude, your attitude toward uh, what you're calling, or what has been called Buddhist modernism, I guess. Um, uh, and which is to say, Buddhism as conceived by a number of people 
mainly in the West, you, you might say, a, a relatively, you know, more secular version of Buddhism and so on. We'll, we'll get into what you mean, but, but first let's do talk about your past because it, first of all, it's very interesting. I wasn't raised on a commune. You were. Um, <laughs> and secondly, uh, you encountered Buddhism much earlier than I did. In your case, I think age 11. And also, you had reason to be ambivalent about it from the beginning, uh, kind of. Mm-hmm. You, had, you had mixed attitudes towards it. So why don't you tell us your, uh, you know, just briefly your life story as it pertains to the book. All right. Okay. Uh, great. So uh, I guess the place to start is when I was around, yeah, 11 years old. Uh, my parents, my father, William Irwin Thompson, and my mother, Gail Thompson, founded an alternative uh, educational and spiritual, you could say, institute that also was run as an intentional community. So this is in the early 1970s. It was called the Lindisfarne Association. And uh, it was based in, originally it was based in Southampton, Long Island, and New York, and then uh, also in Manhattan. And the idea that my father really had when he started it was, so he was a university professor at York University in Toronto. He was a full professor with tenure. And he felt in the early 1970s that the universities weren't really providing the kind of education that he thought was needed for the culture at the time. Uh, in a whole different range of ways. Um, but I suppose you could say in, re- in relationship to what at the time was perceived as a kind of cultural crisis of, of meaning, very much some of the same things that we're, you know, facing today, environmental issues, political issues. This was in the, you know, context of some years ago, of course, um, but very much the same kinds of issues still with us. At any rate, so he left the university as a full professor, walked out on the university, wrote an article called Walking Out on the University, <laughs> and founded the Lindisfarne Association. And what the the institute did is it brought together scientists and scholars and environmentalists and activists and religious spiritual teachers from a whole bunch of different uh, religions or faiths, including Buddhist teachers, and these lived with us in a, you know, commune residential community setting. And then there were yearly conferences that would bring together people from uh, elsewhere internationally. And so from a very early age, I was raised around Buddhism and Buddhist teachers. My first exposure really to to Buddhism, aside from reading about it in books, was through Zen Buddhist teachers who lived with us. We had... Uh, close ties to the San Francisco Zen Center. My father was a very uh, good friend of Richard Baker Roshi, who was the abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center at that time. And so he was a Lindisfarne fellow, and he sent um, teachers, monks, to live with us and instruct the community in Zen meditation. And my first ambivalence to Buddhism was really that that exposure. So we had gone away, my family, my, my father and my mother and my sister and I, we had gone uh, to England and Scotland for a couple of weeks. This was like 1974. And then we came back to the community and the Zen monks had sort of set up residence while we were gone and they had instructed people in, in meditation. And from the perspective of the kids, the commune had been sort of taken over by a, by a Zen demeanor, let's call it. Um, that is the the meditation room, which was supposed to be a kind of ecumenical space for people to practice any form of meditation, had been sort of regimented in a Zen way with Zen ritual, 
Um, and, and Zen, Zen posture. isn't Zen a little more bigger on regimentation than some other Buddhist traditions, or is that yeah. a, just a stereotype? It is. Yeah, no, I think that's fair to say. I think definitely Japanese Zen, uh, especially uh, as it was brought to North America, is there's a lot of emphasis on ritual, on posture. Uh, I mean, in, that has a deeper philosophical basis, too, in the sense that in in some ways of thinking about meditation in the Zen or, or in Chinese Chan tradition, the idea is that uh, the, the ritual, the posture, the sitting is the meditation, and the idea that you should be trying to kind of get somewhere else is constantly sort of thwarted and circumvented. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the ritual, you could say, reminds people of that. But from an outsider's perspective, coming back to it, especially from the perspective of a kid who was kind of used to like running around and making noise and, you know, doing whatever we wanted. It was the 1970s after all. So kids were given a fair amount of free reign. Um, all especially, of a sudden we had Especially to, on communes. My, my father was an army yeah. officer. So that attitude wasn't universal right. in the 70s, but, uh, right. uh <laughs> yeah, no, definitely in a, in a commune setting for sure. Um, so, uh, so my reaction to it was that, that my perception of it was that it seemed forced and artificial and, um, you could, you could say that it was, uh, from a kid's perspective, it was, it was, uh, not, not sort of genuine and, and warm and humane. It was very sort of strict and cold, mm-hmm. um, a kid's perspective on a commune, not a kid's perspective growing up on a military base, of course. Um, so that was my first exposure to it. But uh, I had ambivalences in the sense that I was always very interested in Buddhism, especially philosophically, even from an early age. You know, my my dad had given me, you know, books about Buddhism that were kind of written for teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, I should say by way of background, my, my father was raised – uh, as an Irish Catholic, very, very severe, heavy dose of Irish Catholicism. He was sent away to Irish uh, Catholic military boarding school when he was like seven years old and left the church when he was 13. So this would have been in the 1950s and searched for other, you know, religious spiritual paths. And eventually he personally hit on yoga in the, in the tradition of Yogananda which was popular in California at the time, but he always had a very kind of ecumenical attitude towards religion. So as a result, we had a lot of different, you know, religious, spiritual teachers, Christian, you know, mm-hmm. Christian priests, Buddhist, Jewish teachers. And so that was part of the milieu that I grew up in. Um, and I, I was saying to, a, to a, a friend the other day, just to kind of give the kids perspective again, the kids kind of judged the teachers in terms of how nice they were to the kids. And, the, the Zen teachers, I have to say, were kind of at the bottom. They weren't. They weren't so nice. And the, yeah. and the Sufi teachers were really nice. They were always like, you know, really attentive to the kids. So that's kind of how the kids perceive things in yeah. this weird okay. setting. Um, so that was the first. That was the first exposure. And then through Lindisfarne, I met uh, the Buddhist writer and translator Robert Thurman, Bob Thurman. And then you studied uh, under came, him at Amherst yeah. College, right? As an undergraduate. And I studied under him at Amherst College. So because I had met him through. My dad at Lindisfarne, I uh, decided to apply to Amherst to study with him. I was interested in, you know, Asian religions. I was actually really interested in Chinese history and language. So I went to Amherst, studied with him, and then did, you know, Buddhist studies academically as an undergraduate with him, which was, which was really, you know, he was a fantastic teacher. Um, 
and then went on in grad school in philosophy, uh, not in religion or Asian studies, but kept the interest in Buddhism all along the way, both personally in terms of trying to relate to Buddhism as a living tradition through, say, meditation practice, and also academically, intellectually through through Buddhist philosophy. And I mean, and that's continued up until right. this this book that I wrote. Right, and you stayed enough, I guess, a part of some Buddhist community such that you wound up being involved in this whole kind of mind and life thing. There, there, there's this Mind and Life Institute with the Mind and Life Dialogues, which are probably better known to people as, as the Dalai Lama sitting down with scientists. And, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, and this whole right. kind of very consciously cultivated dialogue between Buddhism and science that uh, is is prominently associated with the Dalai Lama, and this this moves us a little closer to what you're going to ultimately criticize about uh, modern Buddhism. And um, so, why don't you talk a little about your experiences there? I know you 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 describe an experience at the Insight Meditation Society where I've done most of the meditation retreats I've done. It's one of the kind of foundational institutions, I would say, for American Buddhism, especially in the Theravada kind of Vipassana mindfulness tradition. Um, and so why don't you um, talk about that? Yeah, so let me just say something first about the Mind and Life Institute. Uh, the Mind and Life Institute was founded by, or the founding scientist of the Mind and Life Institute was Francisco Varela, whom you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. one of the co-authors of the book I did um called the embodied mind whom you had and met Varela, as a, you had met as a child right exactly so i met varela at lindisfarne as a child he came to a conference organized uh by my father at lindisfarne and then lived with us as scholar in residence and he was a neuroscientist very pioneering neuroscientist he was also a student of chogyam trungpa rinpoche who founded the naropa uh institute uh now naropa university in boulder colorado and a few years later, so this was in the 1970s, but then in late, later towards the end of the 1980s, Varela founded, Varela met the Dalai Lama, and out of his meeting the Dalai Lama and the conversations they started to have about Buddhism and science, particularly Buddhism and, let's say, the mind sciences or the cognitive sciences, the Mind and Life Institute was formed. And it was formed originally as a way to... Um, to facilitate and host dialogues between the Dalai Lama and scientists. Then, when Varela uh, died in 2001, this coincided with the Mind and Life Institute kind of going public and holding public meetings about Buddhism and science with the Dalai Lama. The first one was in at MIT in 2003, and that's around the time I got involved with the Mind and Life Institute, um, sort of in its going public phase after after Varela had died. And it's really through my experience of looking at the Buddhism science dialogue as it evolved, let's say from 2003 up to like 2014-15, in the setting of the Mind and Life Institute, that that was kind of the the more immediate impetus for the for the book Why I'm Not a Buddhist. And so the the Insight Medita Meditation Society enters into that story. Because it would have been in 2008. Well, I should, I should say actually before that, that, um, Sharon Salzberg, who's one of the main teachers at, at IMS, mm -hmm. she was also one of the principal meditation teachers at the Mind and Life Summer Research Institute, which is a yearly 
uh, institute slash kind of retreat setting for scientists who are interested in the study of meditation practices. And I had a hand in, in helping design that institute and I was the academic chair in a, on a number of years for the, for the, uh, for the institute. It's a week long institute that happens in Garrison, New York mm-hmm. and at the Garrison Institute. Yeah. Uh, I've, done a, I've done a retreat there too. That's nice. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, so through that connection between the Mind and Life Institute and teachers at IMS like, like Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein, in 2008, there was a special Vipassana meditation retreat. Their, their sort of introductory, you know, seven day format Vipassana retreat that was specifically designed for clinicians and scientists with an interest in meditation, like clinical psychologists and mm-hmm. neuroscientists and so on. And I participated in that retreat. I hadn't done a Vipassana retreat before or, mm. or uh, hadn't done that style of practice before. So that was really my introduction to it in a retreat format. And so there were, you know, grad students and postdocs from a whole bunch of different people's labs there and scientists and, you know, philosophers. And it was uh, it was a very interesting experience that informed how I think about the Buddhism science dialogue in the sense that what was – said to be happening sort of explicitly rhetorically on the part of the teachers of the retreat was learning to see the mind as it is in itself, learning to sort of drop concepts, drop preconceptions, drop habitual reactions, um, be with the mind as it, as it actually is from moment to moment. That was the rhetoric. And at the same time, uh, and I should say, I was, I was, you know, very much caught up in that rhetoric. I, I, I found the meditation retreat, uh, in my own case, it was actually personally kind of very exhilarating, very captivating in a way. But at the same time, the sort of skeptical philosopher side of my personality, uh, couldn't help but notice that we were all, that we were being given a conceptual system that we were encouraged to use to shape our experience and to look at everything that happened in terms of it. And that in a way contradicted the rhetoric of dropping concepts to see things how they are. And so that got me thinking about, well, what exactly is happening in meditation in general? And then specifically in this particular Vipassana, you know, Mahasi, coming from Mahasi Sayadaw in Burma and brought into North America in the you know context of the 20th and 21st century, so that's part of the story of the of the book as well. The, okay. the why I'm not a Buddhist. Okay, so um, yeah, and 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 a lot of a lot of the doubts that motivate the book are about uh, common conceptions of the proper relationship between science and Buddhism. I guess it's fair to say. And so to get back right. to this um, this uh, thing you criticize called Buddhist uh, modernism. You say, uh, so that you're saying the dominant strand of modern Buddhism, and here we mean, I think you mean kind of in North America and, you know, uh, maybe, maybe in Europe, um, uh, known, is known as Buddhist modernism, or, or you say known as Buddhist modernism is full of confused ideas. They coalesce around what I call Buddhist exceptionalism. Uh, then you say, well, tell, why don't you tell us what Buddhist exceptionalism is? Right. Right. So Buddhist exceptionalism is the idea that um, Buddhism either isn't really a religion, it's a philosophy or a way of life or, or a mind science, or it's a religion that's superior to other religions because it's inherently rational and empirical in a way that, say, 
theistic religions that um, posit, posit a God or faith in God aren't. So this idea is a major, major strand of what historians call Buddhist modernism. And so I need to say something about what Buddhist modernism is. Um, Buddhist modernism is the form of Buddhism that originally we see emerging in Asian countries at the, let's say, in the 19th century and then into the 20th century that are under colonial European uh, rule. So countries like um, Sri Lanka or Ceylon then and, and um, Burma or Myanmar, these, these countries are, um, you know, occupied and controlled by, by the British or by other European, you know, colonial influences, powers. And the European colonizers, of course, assert the superiority of the Christian religion and of European civilization and of science. And they present, you know, Christianity as the, as the religion that is allied with, with modern science. And so what the European Buddh- or sorry, what the, um, Asian, uh, reformer Buddhists do is very, very clever move, mm-hmm. is they turn the argument around and they say, well, no, actually Buddhism is really the scientific religion because we don't believe in God. We don't believe in a creator God. We don't believe in an immortal soul. We believe everything is related causally in terms of cause and effect. And so they kind of turn the argument around and they present Buddhism as the, as the superior and truly modern religion. And then this form of Buddhism gets exported to the West and is the kind of Buddhism that Westerners encounter. And it's very much shaped by, uh, by European Protestant sensibilities and then gets imported back into Asia. And then so there's this kind of complex, you know, back and forth. So it becomes a, a sort of transnational kind of lingua franca for, for modern Buddhism. This idea that Buddhism isn't really a religion, it's a kind of rational empirical philosophy or way of life, or it's a superior religion. So I, my book is mainly a critique of that idea of Buddhist okay. modernism and Buddhist exceptionalism. Okay. And I, I should, I should say that part of the critique is specific to it, and then part of the critique is to use it to make more general points about the relationship between science and religion. So that's kind of the larger okay. thing in my sights. Okay. And it is interesting, and not a lot of people appreciate this. I think the the uh, how much of uh, what we might think of as Western Buddhism actually does begin in in Asia under the circumstances you you describe, right. uh, including um, the idea of a lot of lay people meditating, which isn't the rule in in Asia. But you did see that uh, under colonial rule as a kind of you know almost nationalist reaction against um, colonial or right. traditionalist, an indigenous traditionalist right. reaction against. Um, Colonialism. Right, so, exactly. um, so okay. So this is the first place where I get um, self-indulgent. I just want to get clear on the extent to which you think I belong to the um, Buddhist modernist school, because as you describe it, I don't think I do. But you say some things that seem to indicate that you think I, I do. So when I see you write that um, Buddhist exceptionalism is the belief that. Um, Either Buddhism is superior to other religions in being inherently rational or empirical, or that it's not a religion but a kind of mind science. I don't identify with either of those positions so far, you know. Um, and there's a place where you describe um, my views, and I want to get – I just want to uh, be clear on what what I meant um, – when I said the things you quote here, so this is a quote from your book. When I say quote unquote 
you're quoting my book, okay, but this whole thing is a quote from your book. Robert Wright argues that science corroborates the, quote, core ideas, unquote, of Buddhism. These ideas are not, quote, the supernatural or more exotically metaphysical parts of Buddhism, reincarnation, for example, but rather the naturalistic parts, ideas that fall squarely within modern psychology and philosophy. End of quote of my book and end of uh, your quoting me. So I think most people would read that and think that I'm saying that from that description that the truly core ideas of Buddhism are not the supernatural ones, right? Is that mm-hmm. – that's what you meant to have me saying? Yeah, so I understood you to be saying there, and definitely correct me if this is this is mistaken. But I read you as saying that there are um, that that Buddhism has certain core ideas, and that these ideas um, can be can be rendered in a naturalistic way, or 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 uh, are let's say uh, compatible with a naturalistic viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And we can kind of take those from Buddhism, still call it Buddhism, while leaving out the other stuff that we're going to identify as, let's say, supernaturalist. That that's how I that's how I understood. Yeah. You. Well, it's it's closely related. So, to what so I-, I would say, <laughs> just just to just to um, sorry to interrupt, uh, but I so I would say that's a Buddhist modernist move. Yeah, that um, would be. I, as right. I understand it, that would be. But but here's so what I actually say is this is there's a thing called a note to readers at the very beginning of my book right before the first chapter and i say look basically any book with a title like why buddhism is true it's bound to have some careful qualification somewhere along the way here's my qualifying and i say first i'm not talking about the super the quote supernatural or more exotically metaphysical parts of buddhism reincarnation for example but rather about the naturalistic parts okay i i elaborate um on that and then I say two, and these are numbered paragraphs, uh, you know, and then there's a, so, so I, I just right away rule out the, the, what you might call, the, what I would call the traditionally religious parts, like rebirth, divinities, praying to divinities. I just establish I'm not talking about that. And then I realize I have a second problem, which is, of course, even within the realm of naturalistic uh, Buddhism, there are differences in different traditions in the way they interpret something like, say, the not-self doctrine, emptiness, these more philosophical or psychological ideas. So I say, uh, I'm of course aware that there's no one Buddhism, but rather various Buddhist traditions, which differ on all kinds of traditions. But this book focuses on a kind of common core uh, fundamental ideas that are found uh, across Buddhist tradition. So what I mean to be doing there is saying I'm only talking about the naturalistic part and and within that um I'm I, I'm I'm focusing on ideas that are uh pretty much common to all um Buddhist traditions. I don't mean to be saying that all core ideas of Buddhism fall within the naturalistic part. And I'm uh, in the appendix where I uh kind of re- regurgitate the whole book, summarize the whole book. I'm, I'm maybe a little more explicit. I say, that, you know, this book is about uh, an argument for the validity of what I consider the core ideas of Buddhism. And then I say, or at least the core ideas of the, quote, naturalistic side of Buddhism. So that's what I mean the book to be about. And, you know, to put uh, another place where this comes through early on, and again, sorry about the self-indulgence, but, um, you know, in the first uh, chapter, page two, I say... 
Um, two of the most common Western conceptions of Buddhism, that it's atheistic and that it revolves around meditation, are wrong. Most Asian Buddhists do believe in gods, though not an omnipotent creator god, and don't meditate. So, I mean, this, this is... I. I this is the funny thing. I, I actually share some of the frustrations that you have about common attitudes uh, toward Buddhism, which is like pretending that real Buddhism in Asia is is this purely naturalistic thing, um, or um, or for that matter. And for that matter, I don't agree with the the other move that you um, identify with with uh, Buddhist exceptionalism that. Um, uh, that it's well, I wouldn't describe it as a kind of a, a mind science. I guess I would say mm-hmm. the um, right. but anyway, I want to emphasize I the, the ideas like rebirth and which I don't address um are are absolutely core ideas of Buddhism um in Asia. Now, at the same time, it's possible to talk about um a part of Buddhism. Um, you know, a, 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 an offshoot of Buddhism that is now practiced by people who call themselves Buddhists, although I don't call myself a Buddhist, as I explained in the book. Um, so I just want to be clear that, um, the, the two, the things you, I don't, I don't identify as a Buddhist exceptionalist myself. And to the extent that that's a prerequisite for being a Buddhist modernist, I don't, um, I don't consider myself one of those. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so there's a number of things I I, uh, I would say in response to that. Um, so, first of all, I would say, you know, Buddhist modernism is is not a. It's 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 not as if there is one kind of thing, one doctrine, or one worked out systematic philosophy that is Buddhist modernism. Buddhist modernism is kind of constellation of different ideas. It takes different forms depending on whether it's sort of you know. Burmese Vipassana Buddhist modernism or whether it's Japanese Zen Buddhist modernism. So, so there's going to be variations. And, um, so that's, that's just kind of a general point with, with regards specifically to the things that you say. Um, and I think I do mention this in my book, you know, so for example, um, I say that, that you say that, uh, that secular Buddhism actually does count as religious in a way that secular Buddhists often themselves would would deny, and I, I I agree with you on that. I think that's right. So there are specific points you make about different sort of things that we see in Buddhist modernism that I think are right and that I agree with. I, I should add that, that that's said, a, that's a little bit of a. I, I mean, I'm kind of str- I feel I'm kind of straining there. I'm just saying there are definitions of religion, such as William James's, which would accommodate this secular Buddhism as religious. I, I personally. Think it's a question of how you define religion, but right, but the, right. but what I'm That's, not doing what 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 annoys us both I think is people who say why can't gee the Asians got it right they have a religion that has no gods and has you know and that's just that's just not true we agree on that right right so so what I would say I mean to come more to the substance of of the issue what I would say is that it is a Buddhist it is a Buddhist modernist move. To try to um, distinguish something as the core of Buddhism, and then to call it naturalistic, in okay, contrast not, to I, I other things. I want to emphasize. I want to emphasize. I'm not doing that. 
and and there are people who do it. I mean, for example, well, uh, but the quotes the quotes you just gave me seem to me to say that. No, right? but you, you inverted the order I'm, of the quotes. You inverted the order of the quotes, and is is my point not not intentionally? In fact, what you actually did, I think, is take a quote from the appendix and take a quote from that kind of uh, front, uh, you know, the note to readers. But my point is, if you read those in sequence, I say, look, I'm just focusing on natural the naturalistic part of buddhism i'm not denying the importance of the other the i'm I'm just not addressing i'm not getting into rebirth okay uh then within the naturalistic tradition you know what about the problem that within that tradition you know zen buddhists may have a different conception of not self or something from these what do i do i I say well i'm i'm trying to focus on just a couple of big ideas or or for example buddha nature which isn't it doesn't, you know, some emphasize not at all, some emphasize, uh, I, I say I'm just focusing on the core naturalistic ideas. That's what I meant to say. So I okay, am so, absolutely so let me, not let me, saying right. that the core of Buddhism is naturalistic. Now, the core okay. of Western Buddhism is, if you want to, you know, fine, we, we would kind of agree on that. I assume that these people you're critiquing are putting naturalism front and center. But I'm not, there are people who say this about Buddhism broadly. Uh, you know, even, uh, well, I won't get into names. You, you don't, uh, you know, there are people who I think do this. I, I don't. Okay. So, so let's, let, let me just make sure I understand the logic here and now, um, before I respond to it. So you're saying there is such a thing as naturalistic Buddhism. That's what I'm concerned with. And I'm concerned with the core of that. Mm-hmm. That's the logic. You go from naturalism to the core mm-hmm. of naturalism. Okay. Okay, good. So, um, so what I would say in response to that is that, um, the, the fundamental, uh, and I don't actually quite put it this way in the book. So in this conversation now, I think is interesting because we're, we're kind of in a way going beyond you know, what I say in the book and what you say in your book, which, which is actually makes it more interesting for me anyway. Um, so I would say that the um, engine of Buddhism, the fundamental engine of Buddhist thinking is not naturalistic. And by that, I do not mean that it has to do with rebirth or supernaturalism. I think the naturalism, supernaturalism distinction is a bit of a red herring here. I think that the core of Buddhism is the thought that 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 is not it's not a scientific thought it's a it's a let's call it a philosophical or religious or soteriological thought it's a thought concerned with salvation or liberation and the core thought is um things are impermanent impermanence is suffering suffering is non-self and liberation is the elimination of suffering so that's, I take it to be the core engine of Buddhism. And that I do of not think is naturalistic. Of, of, of authentic kind of Asian Buddhism, not just Western Buddhism, right? I mean, of anything that deserves the name Buddhism, I think that's the fundamental Buddhist okay. insight. Okay, so can you um, run by the, the sequence again? The, the Yeah, so, so the core would be um, that, I mean, if we, if we want to put it a little bit more precisely and philosophically, it would be that all conditioned and compounded things. So all things subject to cause and effect and, you know, that have parts that are, you know, that are sort of assemblies of things. All are impermanent. All are suffering. So there's an inherent kind of value mm-hmm. judgment. Mm-hmm. All are suffering. Um, all, all are non-self. Mm-hmm. And um, liberation 
is the extinguishing of suffering, which entails, you know, the realization of non-self. So that's like the core, like if you take any of that out, you could say it's Buddhist inspired, it's maybe Buddhist related, but it's not going to, it's not really going to be the, the fundament of, mm-hmm. of Buddhism. Now those ideas, I submit, are not naturalistic ideas. Okay. Impermanence is not, is not a naturalistic idea in the sense here that we're talking about impermanence. Okay. Causes and conditions are not naturalistic in the sense intended here because they have to do with um, mental causes evaluated as good or bad. Um, um, the idea of liberation from suffering, that's not a scientific idea. That's an ethical or soteriological or indeed religious idea. Well, So that I for mean, me is the core of Buddhism. Okay. I mean it's certainly right. This is a core refrain in the Buddhist canon. Everything is impermanent. Is dukkha sometimes translated as suffering? There are others available, but but uh, and everything is not self. Um, But now, so so okay. So part of your disagreement is I think a lot of people would agree with me that you can at least in principle interpret these things um, in a naturalistic way: permanence, impermanence, suffering. Now, not self gets more complicated. uh, Maybe we'll probably get into this, but because. There are various interpretations of it. Some you might you might say are kind of psychological. Some you might say are more metaphysical. Uh, some you might you might say are are most important in their ethical implication and and so on. There's a lot of ways to look at not self. Um, but I see. But 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 I guess I'd like you to say more. And, and, and you do kind of. Uh, there are parts of your book that I now see related to what you're saying here, but I'd like, could you say more about why people who think we can assess uh, these ideas, especially the first two, in naturalistic terms are wrong? Okay, so here's where we connect to Buddhist exceptionalism, and, and this might not be something you disagree with, but would apply maybe to other, other thinkers. Um, I think it's possible to render those ideas that is to interpret them in a way that makes them, let's say, consistent with naturalism. That's that's mm-hmm. a possible move, and many modern Buddhists want to do that. Um, and I have no real argument with that, except that I think it's possible to do the same kind of thing with ideas in Christianity or ideas in Judaism or ideas in Islam or ideas in Hinduism. In other words, that's just what modern religions do is they try to – or one, one sort of strand of what modernity is about with regard to religion is to try to take ideas from – religious traditions and render them in a way that makes them consistent with naturalism. That's fine. But the idea that Buddhism is somehow special, different, and better at that, I think is a real confusion because I simply, I, I think it's not the case. I think that Christians have been doing, trying to do this for centuries. Jews do it. It, it, it actually started out, you know, with Hindu teachers doing this before Buddhist, Buddhism came to the West. So there, I think it's the Buddhist exceptionalism that I'm that I'm arguing with. Now, you might not be an exceptionalist in that way, and that, that's fine. Um, but but I, this I, is a widespread well, thing. I, I mean, here's my view: is that Buddhism is actually quite different from Christianity to the extent that. Accompanying the evolution of the what we might call the conventionally religious part, you know, deities praying for things, um, believing in something that's in some sense an afterlife that uh, and, and and the idea that the way you behave in this life has something to do with whether the afterlife will be a favorable one. Buddhism in Asia has all those things and they correspond roughly to Christianity. 
But Buddhism has alongside that a much more well-developed literature that you could call a literature of philosophy and psychology that addresses issues that in the West are addressed in academia, in philosophy departments, and in um, psychology departments. Now, do you, so I think th- that is distinctive. Now, oh, of yeah. course, Christianity but, but has the theology. Christianity, Christ, but, no, Christianity has that too. I mean, a thinker, take, take a thinker like um, the Indian Buddhist philosopher Vasubandhu or Dharmakirti. So these are hugely influential phil- philosophical figures for, you know, Tibetan philosophy, mm-hmm. Chinese philosophy, Indian philosophy. Very, logically precise, meticulous, analytical thinkers, they are their analogs are people like Aquinas, Augustine, Avicenna, you know, that's that's the right analogy. So if you're gonna say, well Buddhism has this rich intellectual philosophical tradition, of course it does. But so does Christianity. So does Brahminical uh Hindu thinking. So does so right. does uh Islam. And and we it's just our culture doesn't find those psychologies, the psychologies embedded in, say, Augustinian or Aquinian thinking, even though they're sort of like deeply in our moral and legal systems, we don't find them as immediately, uh, I, I will say, seductive in relationship to science in the way yeah. that we do with Buddhist models of the mind. But the Buddhist models of the mind are equally religious slash philosophical, and the idea that somehow they're more compatible with science is just confusion. It, 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 it's well, not the case. It's just they look exotic to us. Oh, I think it's the opposite almost. It's not that they're <laughs> exotic. I mean, I think Aquinas is exotic. He, and, and, and now, now I don't, I don't, I'm not that conversant in Aquinas, but what he's best known for is philosophical arguments for supernatural assertions. In other words, like, this is proof of the existence of God or something, right? So, the, the, the philosophy yes, but, but, he's... Now, but, there may be a whole bunch of Aquinas that gets no airtime, and you're here to tell us about it, but... Uh, right. but, so, but so, that that's part of Aquinas, and Aquinas also has a very sophisticated kind of psychology of, of um, you know, the, the organization of the mind... But Dharmakirti is the same way. Dharmakirti has a huge section of one of his works is devoted to a proof of, of former lives and future lives, a proof of karma, a proof of rebirth. And then mm-hmm. he has a whole bunch of other things that are really interesting that are more immediately, you know, sort of relatable to, uh, to mm-hmm. philosophical issues that we would try to separate from things we would regard as supernatural. But it's the same in Aquinas. It's the, it's the same in, you know, um, it's the same in Descartes for that matter. I mean, this, this is just how well, right. philosophy in evolves of, in relationship in pa- to... Right. In the case of Descartes, right. we actually do okay. focus on what would be considered the more secular philosophy. He, it, it so happens that Descartes was grounding things ultimately in religious belief, but we do. Anyway, let, let me just say, I, I, here's, here's what I, I think the position of mine that's most relevant to your critique is that I am a Buddhist exceptionalist in the following sense. Unless there's a part of Aquinas, A, that I don't know about, and there's a lot I don't know about, and, and, and parts of Augustine that I don't know about, um, uh, that are, that I would just find mind-blowingly good, I do, 
I am willing to say the following provisionally, assuming it's not the case that there are these mind-blowingly good parts of them that I know, <laughs> which is which is say that. And hey. see, this is where the evolutionary psychology comes into my book. You spend a fair amount of time critiquing evolutionary psychology. You're not a fan. We can get into that, but I I I, I don't think anywhere in in um, in your book you you capture the part of evolutionary psychology, leaving aside whether it's right or wrong, that to me is most important in corroborating mm-hmm. Buddhist ideas. And, and and here's what I think is really important. I think that evolutionary psychology um, tells us, and to some extent modern psychology, but, but a, a, an evolutionarily informed modern psychology tells us, that much more than we realize, our perceptions and thoughts are pervaded by, mediated by, and sometimes prompted by feelings, okay? That the old-fashioned distinction between affect on the one hand and cognition on the other hand is as wrong as it can be, and that, as Hume suggested, you know, thought, well, I guess he said uh, reason is a slave to passion, but yes, the motivating... So often, the motivating thing for our perception uh, and our thought is our feelings we have that play such a subtle role that we don't appreciate how they are warping our perceptions and our thoughts, and most consequentially, warping our perceptions of other people. It's like, I see this when I go through your book. It's like, here's a guy who's criticizing me, and that is shaping how charitable right. I am or am not being as I go through your book. And so I'll go through and I'll I'll go, this is an egregious distortion of what I said. And then I'll go through <laughs> a second time and go, well, it, it could be worse. It's actually not that, you know, and, and that's because, uh, and this is the way we go through life, even in much subtler things. It isn't just allies on the one hand, rivals on the other hand. In the most subtle way, our, our perceptions are shaped and pervaded by feeling. Now, that that's an example of, one uh, insight from modern psychology, evolutionary psychology, that I think is, first of all, something Buddhist thinkers really picked up on, A, mm-hmm. and B, and this is the important, this is where the evolution part has to come in. Like, okay, you could have reached, arrived at the conclusions I just stated through just lab psychology without even knowing that humans evolved. But once you know they evolved, you, and you understand natural selection, you realize that what feelings are, are are judgments. They are codes for judgments that natural selection, quote, wants us to make, right? I mean, natural selection, obviously it's not a conscious thing, but let's personify it just for the sake of shorthand and say that natural selection has an agenda. It has values. It wants us to get genes into the next generation and do things subordinate to that, like eat food, have sex, vanquish rivals, right? Th- that is the... Uh, value system of natural selection. And so once you understand that, A, feelings in these super subtle ways pervade thought, um, A, and B, once you understand that they are proxies, the feelings that are shaping our thought are proxies for this value system that I think once you understand it does not deserve our respect, right? It, it, it's it's just this I don't know at best arbitrary idea that genetic proliferation you know should uber all us right um, once you once you realize that feelings are not a good guide to moral conduct intrinsically 
then I think you have to have respect for a, a philosophical tradition, A, that got that early on, and B, developed these techniques, meditation, for kind of separating yourself from these biases ultimately, right? Like becoming more aware of the way these things are coloring your thought. Um, and, and and by the way, this gets into my view of what's important about the, well, both about not-self and emptiness. So let's leave those aside. But I think those are best viewed in this very uh, context. So that's, so yeah, unless there's a part of Aquinas and Augustine that, that I just don't know about, yeah, the the philosophical, psychological part of Buddhism, I suspect, is by the lights of evolutionary psychology especially, you know, I, I don't think it's going so f- too far to say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to say superior because uh, I'll get, I'll get, uh, look, all spiritual traditions have their great things, but you can understand that I'm saying there is something special about this philosophical and psychological tradition that looks particularly good in light of what we now understand about the process that created the human brain, right? Okay, great, right. So, so yeah, so there's a lot of, a lot of points there. I'll see if I can, if I can remember all of them. So the, the core point that you're making about how our, um, how our perceptions and our thoughts are fundamentally biased by feelings, I absolutely agree with. Um, and uh, I think that, that that is something that we're, we're seeing more and more uh, scientific evidence for, so we're coming to understand that from a scientific perspective in, in better and better ways. And evolutionary psychology is not the framework I think that's best for thinking about that, but that's, that's like maybe a different discussion to have. It's, I, I think if we want to put it in more general terms, the idea that we are evolved, biologically evolved creatures in which how we relate to the world is fundamentally biased by the kinds of feelings and affective states we have. I completely agree with that. Um, I also uh, agree that there are um, deep insights into that process in in Buddhism, in the Buddhist tradition, and I agree that that is one of the strengths of the Buddhist tradition. So my my criticism of Buddhist exceptionalism is not meant to say that Buddhism isn't a deep and profound tradition that has that has unique insights. I, of course, I think it is, and I think on on that terrain, it it, it does have. Uh, some some very deep insights. I would say, however, that there are other traditions that also have recognized this point. So uh, I would say that that idea is uh, is fundamental to Stoicism. That our feelings bias how we relate and perceive things. The Stoics think about it differently from the Buddhists. Um, they're probably ultimately not as analytically sharp about it as the Buddhists. I I would say, but they've got and that I insight. I don't think I they have a technique. That, I, just quickly, I don't think they have a meditative te- technique that is centrally that is directly addresses it as Buddhism. But that's just a footnote. Go go ahead. They, they yeah, have, there I mean, is Stoic meditation, but it's different. There are stoic there are stoic meditations that that try to work with that. I I would also say that that um, that there are strands of uh, of Confucianism and Taoism that also uh, are very much shaped by that insight into um, into feeling and, and affect. So yes, uh, you know Buddhism though has 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 some. You know, really important important things to yeah. say about that. I that I that I that I completely agree can, with. Can I just? So I, I don't I, think we disagree there. 
Can I just interject one more thing? And again, another sure. self-indulgent moment. Um, in this note to readers, the, the final point is, I say, asserting the validity of core Buddhist ideas doesn't necessarily say anything one way or the other about other spiritual or philosophical traditions. There will sometimes be logical tensions between a Buddhist idea and, and an idea in another tradition, but often there won't be. And I quote the Dalai Lama's famous thing, you know, don't use Buddhism to become a better Buddhist. You know, use what you learn from Buddhism right. to become better whatever you are. So I'm not right. trying to be exclusivist. I'm, I'm not, right. you, right. you know, I, in a way, I, I mean, well, uh, go ahead. I interrupted you, so keep keep going. No, no, that that that's fine. I think um, I think we can establish, you know, common ground on on that point about about feeling and affect. I I would say that it's um, it is a peculiarly modern and problematic way to think that what meditation is about is an internal individual psychological practice for seeing the link between feelings and you know biases of of craving and biases of of kind of cognitive belief states that's that's very much a uh a, a, a kind of you know, modern individualistic way of thinking about meditation, which which isn't to say that you can't do meditation that way, but I would say that you know, meditation in a in most Buddhist contexts and even still in modern ones is very much also about uh, social practices of ritual and community building, and the way you change your perception is through that. It's not through some kind of internal, like mental dissecting introspection kind of procedure that we think of as scientific. It's it's actually a it's a social reshaping project. That's that's fundamentally what um, a lot of you know a lot of Buddhism, especially in a monastic context, is is traditionally about. So that's just to you know make sure that we we don't render all of buddhism in terms of particular you know like modern conception of what meditation is right i mean at the same time i mean what i was explicitly talking about in my book is modern western buddhism and i try to be clear about that and it doesn't i'm not being dismissive of of traditional buddhism or anything else but you know that, that this kind of meditation you know mindfulness especially uh in a not necessarily super social context is a big part of it. But anyway, um, so uh, let's see. So I guess we were talking about why impermanent suffering and not self you think shouldn't be viewed in a um, in a naturalistic or exclusively naturalistic way. And I certainly think, you know, not self especially can't be viewed in an exclusively um, I mean, a lot of this, I, I think one question you could raise about, uh, my approach and the approach of other people is, is just to what extent is it possible in principle to separate the naturalistic part from the quote supernatural part? Cause they are very tightly intertwined at some places in Buddhism. My view is that you can do it for analytical purposes at relatively little cost. Um, but I, I acknowledge that that's, um, that that's a challenging thing because uh, in, in true kind of Asian Buddhism, of course, uh, these things, like if you want to talk about enlightenment, which I talk about in the book, I mean, maybe we could talk about that. Uh, you know, in Buddhism, that that means you're, you're released from the cycle of rebirth. Well, I, I would consider that not a naturalistic idea, or at least not an idea. It's not an idea that it's that couldn't be true. It's just that it's an idea that's not amenable to naturalistic analysis. It seems to me. Mm-hmm. So I think you know, with regard to all these issues, we 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 probably should say something about what 
what naturalism means exactly. Um, so I want to make two points about that. So one is this is actually a point that Durkheim makes in his in his uh, book on on religion. He says that the very distinction between natural and supernatural reflects a modern scientific worldview. That is, we make this distinction because we consider some things to fall, you know, within our understanding of the universe as, you know, sort of impersonally law-governed according to, you know, rational principles that we can um, specify uh, and empirically test in science. And then anything that falls outside that, we're going to call um, supernatural. And then, you know, it's a modern issue how you want to deal with the relationship between the two. Do you want to just dismiss the supernatural outright or do you want to kind of keep it in its ancestral sphere? So that's like a modern problem. We, it's, it's very problematic to take that modern way of thinking and then project it back onto other cultures that don't think in those terms. So for a Buddhist who isn't a modern Buddhist, who is, say, a you know, sixth-century Buddhist in India, um, that distinction doesn't really work because – Things are causally ordered for a Buddhist, but they're ordered according to the law of karma. So it's both by our lights natural in a way and supernatural in another way, but they're, they're not going to chop it up that way. So it just is a reminder that when, when we're talking about natural versus supernatural, we need to remember this is an issue for us as modern, as, you know, sort of modern scientifically informed, um, thinkers. So that's point number one. Now, point number two then is, okay, so what specifically does naturalism mean? Well, I understand naturalism to be a viewpoint that gives uh, final authority to science on how things are. And if then that's our understanding of naturalism and we take statements like um, things are impermanent, things are impermanent things are suffering, impermanent things are non-self, liberation is the realization of non-self, those are now no longer naturalistic statements because they're not subject to scientific evaluation. They're, they're to, to make an analogy, they're like statements in art or aesthetics. They're in a different mm-hmm. conceptual domain. The way you evaluate statements about the beauty of an artwork isn't through scientific procedures. You evaluate them according to other canons. Similarly, a statement like, Things are impermanent, things are suffering, things are non-self, liberation is the extinguishing of all mental defilements that have to do with attachment to self. That has to be evaluated not according to scientific criteria because they're not scientific statements. It has to be evaluated according to philosophical or religious or ethical criteria. So that for me means that naturalism is not the, is not the right frame for thinking about those about those propositions. So my argument, and this might not be true of you, but my argument with a certain type of Buddhist modernist is they present those statements as if they were naturalistic statements. And they're fundamentally not. That's a confusion of like apples and oranges. That that's my that's my point okay. with regard to the that that uh yeah. issue. Well I'm not sure whether I hold the view that you're most strongly in opposition to here. So let me just uh continue the conversation. I, I guess I would say it is the case that in the West uh, we consider uh, something like say like 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 say if you overcome your this aversive reaction to feelings of anxiety, if you overcome this thirst for the uh, the sweetness of a candy bar or whatever, like if you overcome these things, you will have more equanimity, be calmer, and suffer less. 
that that's the kind of I'm not saying that's equivalent to what you just said, but but that's the kind of statement that we would say could be evaluated in a therapeutic context. It's a therapeutic assertion and we consider therapy part of science. Now, I would add that strictly speaking, nothing about my subjective experience is really amenable to direct scientific observation. And so Whenever you're talking about emotions, the subject, subjectively experienced emotions, um, there's a whole philosophical question about, you know, in what sense that is part of science. That said, these are commonly, um, these, these, these are commonly invoked. Feelings are commonly invoked in part of scientific discussions and we, and we just usually don't delve into the assumptions underlying our inclusion of them in scientific conversations. But anyway, as a starting point, I guess you'd take, you'd take my point that the idea, uh, that, that parts of the Buddhist prescription for ending suffering or ending dukkha, which is sometimes translated as unsatisfactoriness, whatever, uh, parts of that would fall within the Western therapeutic tradition, right, which we think of as part of the Western scientific tradition? Well, I'm not so sure. I think that raises a complicated issue, and, and, and I'm, I, I expect you're familiar with this, and that is that, um, you know, when we mark things as um, anxiety and equanimity and positive and negative and therapeutic, we're doing it in relationship to, you know, some prior uh, value system about what it is to be, you know, a flourishing human being. And, uh, you know, there, there may actually be a quite a bit of variation around that, specifically with regard to meditation practice, where, for example, I mean, I'm sure you know, um, you know, the work that Willoughby Britton has been doing on, you know, dark nights negative experiences that people report dark nights and stuff like that, depersonalization occurring through meditation. So, mm-hmm. you know, we if, if we apply a label like depersonalization to the experience, we're rendering it as, you know, a kind of disorder or dysfunction and giving it a clinical frame. But in another context, cultural, historical, that might actually be considered a sign of, of progress along the path. Now, the issue, is it progress along the path or is it, you know, clinical dysfunction? That's not a scientific issue. That's a cultural, ethical, religious issue. There's no, like, straightforward scientific way to decide that issue except in relationship to some antecedent value system. And the antecedent value system in Buddhism, in some forms of Buddhism, is, well, those kinds of experiences are good because they're leading you to see the, the truth of non-self, and that's, and that's progress. And in our culture, that's not how we're going to be inclined to look at it. So those are not, those are not scientific issues for me. I mean, they're not amenable to straightforward scientific measurement, resolution, and testing. They have to do with bigger issues about, about value and about, you know, yeah. uh, what it is to be a flourishing being. Of course, a, a lot of what we do about value is accept the person's word for it. Like if they say, I had a terrible time at that meditation retreat, then, then, uh, then we call it a dark night of the soul and call it bad and assess what happened. Whereas if they say, Hey, I feel great. You know, well, and now that itself may be culturally conditioned. Uh, but anyway, I, I, um, I, yeah, I mean, I think so. Like some, you know, in some contexts, if you say, I had a great time at that, you know, in that meditation session, you know, in some, in some contexts, your teacher might say something like, yeah, well, keep meditating and it'll go away. Um, you know, you're not supposed to get, you know, attached to pleasure states. And if you had a really bad time, 
It might be, yeah, you're actually seeing, you know, things are impermanent, things are suffering. You're seeing there is no self and, mm-hmm. you know, like keep working with it. So, you know, the, these, these are things that, that are complicated and aren't sort of straightforwardly scientifically tractable. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little about, um, well, two things. What you call neural Buddhism. I'm not sure I'm a neural Buddhist either, but maybe I'll, you can get me clear on that. And, and, and then, uh, the, the thing you're, that, that ultimately, in a way, the book is, is to some extent devoted to advocating, which is embodied, the embodied cognitive science or the embodied view of cognition or whatever you, you whatever you want to call it. So, so what is, um, cause I guess I'm not, I'm not sure how the, I see why those two things are as mutually exclusive as you do. But, so why don't you tell us what neural, Buddhism is and why okay. you think it's the wrong way and, and embodied cognitive science right, is the right way. Right. right. Okay. So, so neural Buddhism is again, you know, this is, this is kind of a, a, a term for a constellation of different things that, you know, we'll see people, people say. Um, but the, the kinds of things that I have in mind are, um, you know, Buddhism says there is no self and neuroscience shows that there is no self because if you look in the brain, you don't find a self. And so neuroscience supports Buddhism. That would be one example. Or, um, enlightenment is a, uh, identifiable state in the brain. And, uh, if we're interested in the, you know, the neuroscience of meditation, we should try to isolate exactly what that, what that brain state is that, that is the state of enlightenment. Um, or maybe this would be more kind of like a methodological idea that the, the, the way to really understand what meditation is and to validate it is by looking at what's going on in the brain when people meditate or the effects of meditation on the brain. So all of that is what I call neural Buddhism. Um, so I have a bunch of different objections to it, but the, but the principal objection would be that the brain is, of course, uh, a crucially important you know, part of the human organism and the human person. But the idea that you should go looking inside the brain for what meditation fundamentally is or what its value is, is confused because meditation is an activity of the whole person in a situated and embodied context. And that's the level at which it needs to be studied. So to give an analogy, just to help people sort okay, of see so that's what I'm the, talking about. The, I want to just focus on, that's the level at which it should be studied. Like any other level, like just doing a brain scan is like not legitimate because it, it is not a level that no, encompasses no, 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 all no. of this? No, no, it's a question of um, what questions you ask and what methods you use for the questions. So the So the analogy that I would use is... Suppose we take uh, – this is an analogy I use in the book. Suppose we take a gifted performer like Yo-Yo Ma and we study what is going on in his brain when he plays box cello suite number one. Of course, it stands to reason, given his years of training and expertise, that – the neural systems involved in musical cognition and in, you know, motor performance for playing the cello are going to look different for him than they are for somebody who's an amateur player or who doesn't know how to play at all. That is fine. That's information. Mm-hmm. But the idea that that would somehow tell us what playing music is, mm. that it would give us an understanding of Bach, 
that's confused because you need to understand Bach and music fully to actually make sense of the neural results. And in, to understand Bach, you need to know a whole bunch about you know history and culture and context and conventions of music. So the analogy with meditation is, of course, it stands to reason if somebody has practiced 40,000 hours of meditation and done three-year retreats in a Tibetan Buddhist monastic context, their brain is probably going to look different from that mm-hmm. of um, an inexperienced meditator. Um, there may have been antecedent differences in the brain that made them select for that path of life too, for that matter. But the idea that that somehow validates what meditation is or gives us a deeper understanding into what meditation is, that's as confused as thinking that you get a deeper understanding of what Bach is by looking at what's going on in Yo-Yo Ma's brain. It's just, it's just a, it's a, a confusion of, of levels. Yeah, well, I certainly think that the idea that it validates meditation is uh, confused. And, and in general, I share your view. I mean, it's something you, you say in the book, which totally... I don't cap- accuse you of this, by the way. No, I know, I, I, I know. But, but, but I, I don't just, accuse you of this. <laughs> I want to emphasize, this totally captures my reaction when you say, well, of course it changes your brain. Everything you do changes your brain. Right. And that's always exactly. been my, exactly. my reaction, which is that, of course, there's going to be a neural correlate. Now, that said, uh, and so I didn't spend that much time in my book on brain science, and I certainly didn't spend any time saying there's a meditation does make some long-term change in your brain that's good, more white tissue, more dark tissue, whatever. I, I don't, I don't do that at all. The, the one thing I kind of, um, the main thing I spend a little time on is, you know, psychologists had talked about this thing called the default mode network, very loosely defined network that seems roughly correlated with the my activity in it seems roughly correlated with mind wandering. So it's kind of interesting that when people meditate, certain kinds of meditation seem to reduce activity in that. That's consistent with the introspective observation that certain kinds of meditation lead to less mind wandering. That's just kind of interesting, although Honestly, to some extent, the reason I include stuff like that is because I know there are people who don't take it for granted that um, everything you do, every, every mental change changes the brain um, and 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 are just, you know, kind of intrigued and impressed by that. So but but I totally share your view that there's a little too much gee whiz wow reaction to things having observable brain correlates. I still think it's a valuable part of science. I think, um, I mean, I'll give you an example. You oh, said, definitely. Yeah, you, definitely. Like, like, okay, but some, sometimes you almost give us the impression that you, you don't, you don't. So, so that is, a, it's a misunderstanding of me, of you to think that you're, you're saying that brain scans aren't a legitimate part of studying meditation or anything no, no, else? No, no, no. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. Um, I think. Uh, I think brain scans are worth doing if the question you're asking is the kind of question for which that is an appropriate method. So actually here I'm just parroting – my wife is a neuroscientist. She does neuroimaging work. So I'm just parroting what she says here. Rebecca Todd is her name. She actually works on what we were talking about before on how affect biases attention. She's got a bunch of papers, uh, studies on that. So she does neuroimaging, and she says a lot of neuroimaging experiments actually don't need to be done. You do a neuroimaging experiment when you have already behavioral data and you have something that's a neuroimaging experiment is actually, you know, the appropriate kind of experiment. You have a question for which that's the appropriate kind of experiment to, or a method to address. So, you know, uh, I have no issue with that at all. Of course, I think that's important. I think a lot of the meditation work, not all of it, but a lot of it doesn't meet that standard. 
and um, people generalize off of it in very facile ways. So that's why I sort of go after it a little bit in the book, but I, I have no objection to it as a method as such. No, of course not. Okay. Now, another thing you criticize is the idea that enlightenment is a brain state. Now, I would never put it that way, but let me explain why why I wouldn't one reason I wouldn't put it that way and and then let you tell me whether that's the only reason you wouldn't put it that way or whether there's something deeper or different that is your objection okay mm-hmm. I mean first of all I'm not you know as you know there's this position in philosophy in the in the whole context of the mind body problem called eliminative materialism which says that consciousness is Nothing more than a brain state, right? And, and to my mind, that's basically a way of saying consciousness doesn't exist, which to my mind is crazy because it's definitely like something to be me. I have subjective experience. So that's one reason I wouldn't say enlightenment is just a brain state. I, I, I Well, also, I'm agnostic on whether anyone has ever attained enlightenment. I should say that. I, I do talk about enlightenment as a kind of idealized state we can at least imagine uh, but, uh, but I don't know whether anyone's attained it. I would suspect that if they did, there would be neural correlates. Uh, so do you, so does my objection to the phrase, um, enlightenment is a brain state, I don't think that fully captures your objection, right? And, and I think. Yeah. Right. My okay. objection is a little different. So, so again, to be clear, this is not something, uh, that I criticize you for at all. This no, is I in know, a different part of the book. Yeah. Um, just so our listeners understand this. Um, so I think, uh, enlightenment is not a state. It's a concept. What, are, what do I mean by that? I mean that the term enlightenment, the term awakening, the term buddhi, in, if we want to use the, the Sanskrit, these are words that are understood in many different ways by different thinkers, by different religious teachers in different contexts. And the idea that we could somehow extract out of these really fundamental, you know, disagreements and differences in conception, something that is enlightenment such that we could identify it in the brain seems to me um, mistaken. So the analogy I use to, to get at this is love. So, of course, you need a brain to experience love. And it stands to reason that when you experience love, whether it's romantic love or parental love, that, you know, distinctive sorts of things are going to be going on in your brain. But you can't understand what love is by looking at the brain because love is this multivalent concept that means so many different things. And what it is actually depends on our concept. So, what romantic love depends on how we conceptualize romantic love. What parental love depends on how we conceptualize what it is to be a good parent, and that's socially, culturally mm-hmm. variable. So the very phenomenon itself is concept dependent. So I, and, and, and this is kind of a strong argument that I think many people will disagree with, I argue that enlightenment is concept dependent in the way that love is concept dependent. I don't mean that people don't have experiences of awakening or transcendence, or transformation, but the very conceptualizing of it as awakening or enlightenment depends on a concept of awakening or enlightenment that has to be embedded in some system, whether it's Theravada or Zen or Hindu or, you know, whatever, that gives it meaning. And, mm. and it, 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 it is awakening or enlightenment because of that conceptual dependence, just as love is love because of that conceptual dependence. And similarly, in the case of love, 
some kinds of love are inaccessible to us today. It's impossible for anyone today to access medieval courtly love, European medieval courtly love, because that has to do with a whole array of complex cultural practices and, you know, conceptions of gender and all sorts of things that are just very foreign to us. Similarly, there are certain kinds of awakening uh, practices and experiences, like ones that happened in, say, 4th century BCE, India, under a culture of asceticism, that are inaccessible to most of us today. So so that's my point about awakening, is that it's concept-dependent okay. and, and context-dependent as well, just, just as love is. Okay. Um I mean, a footnote, as I'd say, from an evolutionary point of view, I would I would think that there was something like of an, an experience of love before our ancestors had enough linguistic capability to describe it. But that aside, I, I mean, you know, uh, love of offspring, love. But but that's just a, that's just a footnote. We could argue about that. The the thing about enlightenment, and th- this brings us back to something that I think is very impressive. I guess about. Um, Buddhism is there's this amazing claim uh, that that I think is uh, kind of embedded in Buddhism, which is that if we imagine this idealized state of enlightenment, uh, well, okay, there are different conceptions of enlightenment. You're right to say the book that look it's described this way here, getting rid of the taints. It's described this way here, uh, true, but but I, I I hope you'll agree that one reasonably mainstream way to describe at least one of the ingredients of enlightenment, you know, gets back to the role of feelings. And, and it, it would involve, um, you know, no longer, again, no longer uh, having this aversive reaction to the bad feelings and this clinging reaction to the good feelings and and correspondingly the things that induce those feelings you know like like uh i don't know um the sight of snakes or this and food respectively whatever but anyway the point is um th- there would be involved um uh this uh tremendous reduction of the role of feelings in your motivational system as they currently uh, play out. A, and, the, and the claim, the, this is the amazing part of the claim, that this would at once lead to less dukkha, ultimately the elimination of dukkha, described as very, you know, suffering, unsatisfactoriness, whatever. Um, and also, and here, well, well, let me let me not do the asterisk. Let me just say, and also a clearer view of reality. You know, in some renditions, an, an ultimately clear view of of reality. Now, I think that claim that as you move toward this clearer view of reality, you actually are uh, getting more equanimity, less suffering, less unsatisfactoriness. I think that's a defensible claim, and I think. Arguing that it's a defensible claim involves science. To, to my mind, it involves psychology, it involves evolutionary psychology. That's why I bring these things in. But but um, it does get us back to why I think Buddhism is such a a, a distinctively fascinating um, uh, worldview. Uh, you know these these core ideas of Buddhism. Um, so I'm wondering how you would react to that 
So, I mean, I would say that what's going on there is that one is um, one is singling out a particular way of thinking about uh, a possible way of being, uh, a possible you know mental set, if you want to put it that way, that is an elimination of affect biasing, and one is choosing to call that you know, the the supreme, you know, awakening, enlightenment. And then one is trying to uh, either make it consistent with or validate it, depending on how, how you're thinking about it, through science. And my point in relationship to that would be to say uh, that's, got to be seen as distinct from saying what awakening or enlightenment is. It's it's a singling out of, of a particular thing and holding it to be valuable and then trying to establish it, you know, through scientific argumentation. It's an open question whether it's scientifically intelligible um, because if it means the elimination of all affect biasing, um it's an open question whether that's actually something that would be achievable or desirable. Even well, I, I agree. Uh, desirable, I, mean, I, I, I just want to say right? I agree. I agree. The desirable I'm, question is not a. a I, I, I mean, I, just to be clear, the desirable question is not a scientific question. That's an ethical question, right? Would we want that? If you could have complete elimination of right. affect biasing, would you want that? I'm not so sure about that, actually. But yeah. anyway, sorry. Go ahead. So, well, I agree. I'm agnostic on the question of, of whether enlightenment is actually attainable. I think movement toward this idealized version of it. Is, but I want to, as far as you're saying, well, you know, reduction of affect biasing, that's one thing you could single out. Well, I would argue, uh, if you're saying it's one of many ways this is, can be, one of many things you can pluck out of Buddhism, I would say, comes right out of the first sermon after the Buddha's, uh, you know, in enlightenment at Deer Park, right? He says the, 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 the path to the reduction of suffering involves Abandoning tanha, which is thirst, craving, yeah. uh, and and we, that's commonly taken to me to be both in the sense of craving the good feelings and craving to escape from the bad feelings. So I would say, and and, and you know he says this is the path. It basically, says that's the path to enlightenment. So I would say this is really pretty fundamental to Buddhism. And by the way, the second sermon. Uh, uh, this is again according to lore, right? I, I, I don't. I, it's not like I think right. we really know much about what the Buddha said. But in any event, as far as the, how central these things are to the Buddhist canon, the second sermon, and at least uh, certainly in the Theravada tradition, is uh, the sermon on not self, and that is about abandoning. Uh, the thirst, the clinging, again, mm-hmm. to the various um, things that we think of as constituting the self. Um, and, and I think it's very easy to integrate these two ideas, and that's one thing I try to do in, in, in the book and, and explain why it is that abandoning uh, the, the thirst for certain kinds of affect does involve letting go of this tightly constructed sense of self we normally walk around with. So I would say these things are central to the Buddhist can – the conception of enlightenment. Granted, there's lots of ways it's described. But this path right, so that's is, a, one, is fundamental, right? So, so that's one. Um, that's one. Let's say uh, central or one, you know, core way of rendering what awakening or enlightenment could be in Buddhist terms, which is the um, 
the elimination of the taints, the uh, extinguishing of all craving, and the disidentification with anything in the body-mind continuum as self. That that is of course uh, that is of course one conception. Um, there are other conceptions that you see, you know, throughout the ramification of Buddhism. Um, so if if one wants to pick that conception and make it central and uh, subscribe to it, that that is a move one can make. My point again, though, is that that is a uh that's a, that's a that's an ethical or soteriological decision or affirmation and it's not directly validatable or disconfirmable by by science it's in a different sphere of considerations now it may be that you can render that idea uh in a modern way that makes it consistent with science so that there's no by consist, consistency is weak, right? It just means it doesn't contradict anything that is asserted in science. That's that's an effort that you can undertake as a modern Buddhist, uh, and I'm not particularly concerned to argue against that if if uh, that that's a possible path. It's more to point out the um, the nature of what it is. It's it's a ethical, soteriological, religious. It's a step or a move in an ethical, soteriological, religious game, if you will, and um, it's not in itself inherently scientific. Yeah, it's funny. Soteriological, you know, it means it refers to salvation. Right. Um, and it's interesting that you use a term. I would think it's the kind of thing you would object to because, uh, well, I, I mean, it, it seems to me a part that, that belongs to what I've been referring to as the kind of traditionally religious part of Buddhism, because in, in that context, liberation is release from the cycle right. of rebirth. If we right. talk about the end of suffering, I'm not sure I'd call that soteriological. I, I'm not sure I think of salvation, the word salvation, in the same way. But I mean, that aside, I guess I well, I mean, traditionally, even if you leave rebirth out of it for the moment, traditionally, yeah. uh, the idea would be that um, that that the realization of nirvana in this life, so what would what would be called nirvana with remainder, in other words, you still have a body, you're still existing in this life, but you mm-hmm. have attained or realized nirvana, so the arhat, that is the um, that is transcendence in this life. It is the extinguishing of all craving and the cessation of all attachment mm-hmm. and the realization of, of non-self. And um, those realizations are not themselves things that are... Uh, scientifically provable or disprovable. They're 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 um, they're affirmations about a you know a, a particular way of thinking mm-hmm. of human existence. Or yeah, that, that's, that's, that's not really scientific. So this Which is not actually, to say that it's anti-scientific. It's just different. Yeah. It's in a different sphere. Yeah. Well, I mean, one, I, I mean, just. Quickly, I'd say that one of the things I, I described as uh, being involved in the path in the direction of enlightenment, which is a reduction of the role that feelings play on perception and cognition, I, I think it, it is in principle scientifically demonstrable that that could lead to clearer perceptions in certain contexts. But that, le- you know, we don't. Uh, I, I'm not saying it's happened. I, I, but, but, uh, but, but hold on, hold on a second. I want to. I want to. Let, let's think about that. So, so what does clearer perception mean? It might mean well, that you're better at detecting something, you know, according to some psychophysical measure. 
but does it mean sort of seeing things as they are in a way that's best suited to human flourishing? Well, Not necessarily. Let me give you an example. Right? Because let me give yeah, you an example. People tend to overestimate the velocity of approaching objects. <clears throat> okay, mm-hmm. there is such thing as an objective velocity that an approaching object actually has. People, yep. if they're crossing the street or something, they, 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 they think they need to cross the street sooner than they really need to. If there's like an approach, this is an established thing. It makes sense in evolutionary terms, right? Better, better, uh, safe than sorry, right? Better to get out of the way too soon than too late. I would predict that, uh, if you reduced the affective component of the reaction, that is to say the anxiety, the fear, maybe but numbing them with drugs. They would be less inclined to overestimate the velocity, perhaps to their peril. It, it might not be a good thing, but it's an objective right. scientific question, right? right that's right, an right. example. So, okay, okay. So that's a good example because um, here we have, you know, two things we have to consider. One is um, accuracy according to an objective criterion, mm-hmm. and the other would be, um, let's say, uh, what's adaptive. Um, uh, what's right. you know uh you know a better a better you know a better practice uh either in you know on a, on an evolutionary time scale or even you might just say in terms of you know individual behavior so if we apply that distinction to um the idea of eliminating craving attachment disidentifying with anything as self uh, it seems to me an open question, and so so here would be a kind of fundamental disagreement with a certain a certain way of thinking about Buddhism. It seems to me an open question whether that actually would be something uh, that would be that would be beneficial. Uh, maybe um, maybe affirming and inhabiting feelings in a particular way uh, would be how I would rather prefer to live. Um, sure. I'm not defending that necessarily here. I'm just saying that's a, that issue, science isn't going to help me resolve that issue. Science in the sense of objective measurement of what's clearer according to a psychophysical test, that's not going to help me resolve that issue. To resolve that issue, I need to think about, you know, how do I want to be as a human being? What kind of life do I want to live? Sure. You know, how do I want to flourish in the world? And science, you know, is relevant, but it's not going to decide the issue for me. No, I, I certainly wouldn't think science should compel anyone to adopt any particular lifestyle. I would say that, again, I think evolutionary considerations help uh they support one argument in favor of uh of the pragmatic of the of the ethical value of not self i mean you know not self means a lot of things but one thing that some people sometimes report as part of a kind of not self experience is a a dissolution of the bounds of the self in a way that makes other living things other people seem uh you know, closer to being as important as you seem to yourself. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's a reported thing. And I, and I think, um, I think, uh, the evolutionary perspective, you know, just, just helps drive home that the whole system is constructed to deny the idea that other people are as important as you, unless they happen to be like closely related to you or whatever, but it, it illuminates the kind of ethical perversity of our default mode. Now that, that assumes that you accept the ethical premise that all beings are, uh, 
you know, equally worthy of moral consideration, that all sentient beings deserve moral consideration. All people are equally worthy of moral consideration. But if you buy that, and I think most people have at least trouble mounting a strong argument against it, um, then again, I think the evolutionary perspective, it, it, it really drives home that the system we're all living under the influence of, which biases, well, influences our behavior and our ethical judgments in so many subtle ways, more subtly than we realize, was created by this system, natural selection, that has an agenda that we have no reason to respect. And and so, so that, that again, I wouldn't say science tells you you must um, pursue the not-self experience. I do think this is a case where evolutionary considerations highlight a possible reason to consider uh, some consequences of not-self-experience to be ethically valid. That's what I would say. Yeah, I mean, so uh, I, I mean, I don't, I don't look at evolution in, in the way that you're describing it, but, but that's maybe not so immediately relevant to the core point. I mean, I think, uh, I think the, the core point would be that, um, you know, we want to, uh, given this ethical premise that, you know, we're all equally deserving of value and, and dignity and, and respect. We want to have, you know, individual and social practices that that help us really um, cultivate that and inhabit that. I completely agree with that. I think, you know, um, one way of doing that has been under the idea of non-self, um, but other, you know, other ways of doing it have appealed to, you know, we all we all have immortal souls that are, you know, that are equal before God, or. Um, we we all are are sentient beings who you know experience pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's different ways of articulating you know what it is to be deserving of equal respect. The, the you know the no self is one, um, uh, but but it's again to me to my mind it's not more sort of fundamentally scientific in the sense of in harmony with evolution because it's it's just in a different sort of universe of of discourse conceptually speaking because because no self has to do with with disidentifying with body mm-hmm. and mind as self it's it's as much a sort of injunction as it is a description yeah i guess i'm saying that 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 maybe i'm trying to highlight uh, an ethical argument on behalf of the disidentification but the mm-hmm. now one thing you say in the book you do you do agree uh, with me and with others, that there is no self in the sense of a CEO, and or, or at least our conception that there's this conscious me that's running the show is kind of confused. And, and there, yeah. you'd presumably uh, agree that there's that psychology can bring something to bear in support of the argument, right? That uh, the psychological science does help support the argument that uh, the C the, the CEO right. Right. So, yeah. so if, you know, if we, if we, um, think that, you know, what it is to be a self is to have this kind of internal, um, CEO that is this persisting and unchanging subject of experience and agent of action, um, then we can use a lot of tools, philosophical, scientific, phenomenological, to get us to see that that's, that's not a particularly good way of thinking about the self. Yeah, okay. that's right. Um, um, my way of articulating that point is to say that the self is an ongoing construction. Uh, so I don't dismiss the self as just an outright illusion. I think 
that that the self is is something that's enacted in a in a, a kind of ongoing constructive way. It's like a dance. You know, a dance is something that's that's created by the dance. It's not a it's not a sort of independently existing thing apart from the dance. So the self is kind of enacted in a in a process of selfing, you could say. And you know, there are many things that enter into that: biological, social, cultural, evolutionary, and so on. Um, so in relationship to Buddhism. There, the discussion for me is um, one where I take issue with people who say, well, Buddhism says there is no self, and science shows that there is no self. And I say, well, that's a kind of tendentious way of saying what science shows. Science shows that a certain kind of self is not something we have good reason to postulate, but science talks about the self not as an illusion, but as a kind of construction, and it's a biological social construction. So it's not as if there is no self. It's it's rather that we need to understand what the self is as being a, uh, a construction, and that means it's not an outright illusion in the way that some people are inclined to uh, to say. Uh, like you know, Thomas Metzinger, a good friend of mine, you know, he talks about it as an illusion. Miri Al Bahari talks about it as an illusion. I, I don't well, you know, I'm pr- sort of I have share probably- that way. Of putting- I have probably talked about it that way. It wouldn't surprise me. But, but mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of people would find it a pretty subtle distinction between construction and illusion. And I think in the case, if you're saying the CEO self actually does not exist, then to the extent that we construct a conception of that, we're constructing an illusion, right? I mean... Well, if, if the CEO self means there, there is no sort of internal CEO pearl, then yeah. But if the CEO self means there is... Um, a uh, agent that exercises uh, control in a dependent manner, then I would say, well, you know, there is a CEO self. Um, I mm-hmm. mean, so it, it, we, it, it depends kind of, you know, how we specify what we mean. Okay. Um, I don't know how long you feel like going. I mean, I, we could talk, you know, you should tell me when you're getting tired. The, uh, I mean, it's, been- it's your, sh- it, it's your show. So it's up to you. You, 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 you well, call the, you, you oh, call the time. Uh, maybe, maybe go a little longer. I mean, you mentioned, uh, I don't know if you mentioned Nirvana, but you mentioned, uh, when we were talking about in light, well, let me just say this. There is a, there is, um, my description of Nirvana or the, the, the kind of dynamics of, Getting to Nirvana again. I'm agnostic on whether anybody can get to Nirvana, but in principle, um, the uh, mechanics of getting there. Uh, I mean, given that Nirvana and is, you know, and and and, and awakening are said to be reached at the same time, and in, in, in some senses uh, tantamount. Um, it, it won't surprise people that my conception of getting there involves uh, changing your relationship to your feelings. But anyway. What you say is that's mistaken to see Nirvana as a psychological thing because it really is more about transcendence. Now, I would say it is about a certain kind of transcendence. Um, it's transcending your attachment to feelings, which is not nothing, right? If you've ever tried it, mm-hmm. but you must, but maybe you mean more than that. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> So, I mean, nirvana by definition is uh, the is the cessation of craving attachment, um, the illusory idea of self. And when I when I say there's different ways of understanding it, um, 
and then bring in the notion of transcendence, what I'm talking about there is that, you know, one way of understanding nirvana makes it, you know, sort of definitionally linked to the idea of rebirth because samsara is the round and round wheel of life, death, rebirth, redeath, and, and so on, and nirvana is transcendence of that. Um, then there becomes a question, what exactly does that mean? And, and that's, a, you know, a, a different sort of set of issues we could talk about. But that's sort of like one traditional way of understanding what nirvana is. Um, but then I want to also make the point that, well, um, nirvana doesn't have to necessarily be definitionally or logically tied to rebirth in that way because if you render it in terms of the idea of transcendence then it's transcendence of attachment craving uh mistaken you know mistaken knowledge, uh, mistaken uh, uh perception and cognition in terms of things as self and uh that's logically distinct from the question of rebirth so then one way of articulating transcendence would be as you just did, which is to say that it's it's some going beyond of our uh, how do we want to put it our uh, feeling biased modes of perception and thought, I suppose, um, and 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 then we would you know we we'd have to we'd have to evaluate. One, is that possible? Two, is it desirable? And we're kind of back in the discussion that we were having a Mm -hmm. little while ago. But that would be a sort of transcendence version. Yeah. Okay. There's, uh, there's a, uh, or, or actually, let me add one, sorry, let me add one more other thing. So uh, another thing I say that's maybe not quite so psychological in the sense of like empirical psychology is to say, well, you could render it in a sort of like existentialist way. You could say it's an authentic mode of being that isn't just a matter of sort of traits you can specify in descriptive psychological terms. It has to do with a kind of conversion in your existence in terms of how you uh, relate to the inevitability of your own death and um, what it is to, uh, to live in that you know, full realization in a, in a, in a sort of non-attached way. And that, that's not necessarily something you can just like operationalize psychologically. That's sort of more a like existentialist rendering. So that could be another way of putting transcendence. Okay. Um, the, uh, one question about you, you note a, um, this is related to Nirvana. Um, you know, Nirvana is sometimes described as the unconditioned, which is taken to mean, uh, that causality ceases to play a role in effect. You're in some sense in a universe not amenable to causes. Uh, and I, I got into that. Uh, first of all, I, I, again, I find, um, I found the evolutionary perspective kind of interesting because, you know, I, I see again that this, this, uh, this kind of severing the link, uh, between, uh, behavior and feeling as really striking right at the point where natural selection, again, if you want to personify it, is trying to kind of manipulate it. You really, that's, that's where the, the kind of rubber meets the road. But, but that aside, um, the, uh, you say that there's this irony, and I gather this is apparent, uh, if I read you right, it's, it's a long-standing, uh, it's something that's been considered a paradox before, which I don't really see as a paradox, and it's, it's that, 
but you take it seriously, apparently other thinkers have, and, and it's this. It's that, like, well, if nirvana is the realm of the uncaused, then how could meditation or anything else help get you there? Because that would be something causing this state that is uncaused. I mean, the, the, the analogy I would make is like, suppose you're in a, in a canoe in choppy waters and you're like, I'm in motion. I don't want to be in motion. I see this island over there. It is, it is stable. It is solid as a rock. I'm going to use my paddles to create motion that takes me in the direction of the island. Once I'm on the island, I am immune to the motion that I don't like. I will sit still. I will be on this immobile island. I will have used mobility and motion to get me to the place where mobility right. and motion aren't happening. I don't understand the paradox. Right, right. So, so, so that's the, uh, that's one way of dealing with the paradox. That, that's the raft to the other shore is basically what you've just articulated. Okay. So, so let's back up. So, um, so this goes back to what I was, way back earlier in the conversation, what we were talking about when I said there's this kind of like, um, you know, kind of core uh, thought that is kind of like the engine of Buddhism. And that is that, um, you know, all compounded and conditioned things are impermanent, are suffering, are non-self, and nirvana is peace. That's that's sort of the core, you know, like the guts of Buddhism as I see it. Um, so, Nirvana is peace because it's the unconditioned. In other words, it's not conditioned, compounded, because conditioned and compounded is suffering, is not self. Nirvana is not that. It's the unconditioned. So the minute you have a logical kind of structure where you have the conditioned and the unconditioned, then the question arises, what's the relationship between these two radically different things? And the paradox arises or the conundrum, if we want to put it that way, arises that nirvana is attainable. It's a, it's a realization. It's, a, it's, an, it's something attainable as, as witnessed by the reality of the Buddha. Now, um, not only is it attainable, but a path is specified for its attainment, the Noble Eightfold Path classically. But that is to say then that there is a path to follow and then something is the result of following the path. But a result is something conditioned, Con- just conceptually by definition. A result is, con- is something that's conditioned upon, you know, the things that lead to the result. But the nirvana, but nirvana is the unconditioned. So how could nirvana be, how, how could nirvana be a result? This is, this is the conundrum. Now, different things are said in response to this. Um, one is, look, um, you're getting hung up on, you know, concepts, follow the path, it's it's a raft that will take you to the other shore. When you get to the other shore, you don't need the raft anymore. Right. You know, so that's basically what you just articulated. Kind of, kind um, of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, more or less. Um, and classically, that involves, like, faith in the Buddha. You know, like, the Buddha shows you the path, mm. and, you know, you follow it, and you'll get to the other side. So this is where I, you know, want to make the point that, you know, like faith is important in Buddhism too. You know, it's not like Buddhism isn't, you know, a, a, a religion without faith. Um, other, another view uh, is to say, so this is kind of maybe the sort of classic Theravada view, is to say, well, nirvana technically is a cessation. 
it's an absence. So the way to resolve the conundrum is to realize that you're running on this fuel of craving, attachment, the taints. And um, when the fuel goes out, there's no more craving. There's no more, you know, attachment. Mm-hmm. And that just is nirvana. It's the, it's the extinguishing of the fuel. Classically, that means there's no more fuel for rebirth. But if we leave rebirth out, it just means nirvana in this life is the fuel is gone. And that is peace. So it's peace because it's defined negatively, negatively, really. It's defined as the absence of the taints. And then if you ask, well, is it something positive too? Then that gets tricky because if you try to make it something positive, then you're back in the language of causes and conditions. So that's another way of, of trying to deal with the conundrum. Um, still another way is the way that Nagarjuna and certain you know central uh, – strands of Mahayana Buddhism deal with it is to say, well, nirvana and samsara aren't different anyway. Um, there is no there is no difference between nirvana and samsara. There's, you know, Nagarjuna famously says there's no difference between them. There's not the finest, you know, thing to be found between them. So you kind of deconstruct the dualism of the conditioned and the unconditioned. That's a that's another way of dealing with it. So all all of this is just to say that um, that Buddhism has this this core driving thought in its engine and it gives rise to a conundrum and then different things are said in response to the conundrum that um, are supposed to help us help us deal with that and this is typical of you know it's typical of religion typical of, of philosophy that that you know these things these things happen okay um, let me ask you just quickly back to this embodied cognition thing which is in a way you know again ultimately it's kind of what you're it's the view you're advocating as i think in some sense superior to these other views maybe you wouldn't put it that way but but I, what i want to know is do you is a common reaction that you get to this the reaction that i personally had which is like well as you describe embodied cognition who could deny it it's like, yeah, the body must play some role and probably subtler roles than I would have appreciated had I not gotten into the literature of embodied cognition. Fine. Uh, it must play some role in the, what the mind is doing. The world out there obviously enters into what the mind is doing. So the most comprehensive view of the mind has to encompass these things. Fine. But I don't see that as in tension with any of the other perspectives, including evolutionary psychology, including brains, including blah, blah, blah. Whereas... You, um, I mean, I think there's even a place where you put it this way. You say, yeah, this is where you say the proper scientific framework for conceptualizing meditation isn't human brain imaging. It's embodied cognitive science. So, So as I read that, you're saying the proper scientific framework, the, is embodied cognitive science. Now, I would never say the proper scientific framework is evolutionary psychology or any one other thing. I mean, they're all... All these perspectives can be part of a scientific worldview, right? Are, are you – you've probably heard this before, right? Like, okay, fine, embodied yeah. cognition. What does that have to right. – now let me go in peace and do the kind of science I was doing, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. Okay, so what I mean by that statement is that there are um, – so there I'm talking in the context of cognitive science. So I'm talking specifically within the context of – the interdisciplinary, you know, scientific effort to understand the mind that includes, you know, neuroscience, psychology, linguistics, you know, computer science, philosophy. That's that's kind of the framework of discussion. So within that context of cognitive science, um, the, uh, in my mind, 
uh, best, most productive, most fruitful approach for steadying meditation is the embodied cognition paradigm. So that is definitely a strong statement that I'm, that I'm making. Now, um, when it's, when we juxtapose that to neuroimaging, um, neuroimaging is just a method. So it's not a scientific framework or paradigm. Um, so what I'm saying there is I'm saying the idea that, you know, that you're going to understand meditation in scientific terms properly just through neuroimaging is a mistake because neuroimaging is a method you use when you have certain questions and you need the larger theoretical framework to properly formulate those questions, which in my view is the embodied cognition paradigm. So that's like in relation to neuroimaging. Now, in relation to evolutionary psychology, evolutionary psychology is a theoretical framework that I think is fundamentally flawed. And I think it's fundamentally flawed because uh, for a number of reasons. I think it's based on um, a number of premises that scientifically uh, don't really work. So one of them is that we know what the uh, cognitive architecture and selective pressures were in the Pleistocene epoch. We know that they're... They are um, the same ones that we have today. The cognitive architecture is the same that we have today. So you have to establish like vertical descent and homologies and that we can um, investigate and understand cognitive function purely in terms of treating the brain as if it were a massively modular system. So I think the evidence from neuroscience doesn't support the idea of brain as being massively modular in the evolutionary psychology sense. I can say more specifically what I mean by that in a moment. And I also think that we don't have the kind of um, evidence we would need to um, establish the relationship between the Pleistocene epoch and cognitive function and selective pressures there and our cognitive architecture as contemporary humans. We don't methodologically have access to the kinds of data that we would need to establish the strong claims that evolutionary psychologists make. Now, I want to make clear that my criticisms of evolutionary psychology are entirely within the frame of cognitive science. This is independent of anything having to do with Buddhism. This is, you know, I put on my cognitive science hat. I'm a, you know, I'm a philosopher who works in cognitive science. That's kind of the way I was, I was you know, principally trained uh, as, a, as, a, as a philosopher, I put on that hat, and I think evolutionary psychology is a fundamentally flawed research program. So what do I think is the better research program? Embodied cognitive science. So it follows for that, from that for me that that's the perspective to use if we're going to like try to un- understand um, meditation. So let me come back to this point about modularity, just so you know, listeners understand what it is I'm talking about here. So evolutionary psychology, and I should say I don't. Not, I, I, let me just interject and say I don't accept your description of the modular mod, model as as what would be claimed by the evolutionary psychologists who who um, who advocate it. But go ahead, I, I can say more about that. I don't think okay. Lita Cosmides, for example, would recognize your description of it as what she means. But well, uh, I mean, that's for her to say, but I'm, I think I'm pretty faithfully rendering what, what she says. I mean, so evolutionary psychologists say, um, so they say two things. They say, one, our modern 
um, brain, or sorry, our modern heads house a Stone Age mind. And what they mean by that is that our brain is made up of distinct and discrete cognitive modules that were f- selected for functions in the context of the Pleistocene, Pleistocene epoch. Which is to say hunter-gatherer, which is to say right. most uh, distinctively human evolution took place in a hunter-gatherer environment, which is in, in one sense hard to argue with. I mean, that's that's a long oh, many, sweep many of our people, past. Yeah, but... Right, right, but many people okay. would argue with that. Many people would argue with that. Well, so, as I um, put it, it I, I'm to, not sure, but well, so I mean, it has to do with how you think, what you think the relationship between culture and evolution is. So, okay, but I mean, the changes in um, gene frequencies that undergird the the functioning of the brain, it's a very good bet that you know, if you're talking about the distinctively human parts of the brain, um, as distinguished from, say, ape ancestors. Surely, most of that uh, genetic genetic change, which isn't the same as saying the mind isn't malleable or plastic, or that the mind, depending on how you define mind, hasn't changed in a modern environment. But if you're talking about the genetic uh, underpinning of the, the uh, of the of the biological brain, most of that change pretty much must have happened in a hunter gatherer environment because that's just the vast majority. Because agriculture wasn't invented until you know, 6,000 years ago or 8,000 right. so, years ago. So so that's the anatomy of the human brain. But right. with regard to function, it's a wholly different question. You're right. Um, because the, assess- the assessment of function has to do with um, the effects of um, culture on uh, development and on right. togeny. And so that's where a lot of the issues with evolutionary psychologists lie. So the, the evolutionary psychology claim is that, with regard to the brain, is that the brain is a massively modular system where that means that it, it's comprised of um, domain-specific uh, systems, that is, systems that are specific for um, recognizing someone as a mate or for detecting cheaters in social interactions or for, um, you know, cognizing motion, perceiving motion in certain ways, that the brain mm-hmm. is made up of these discrete modular systems that have minimal uh, interactions with each other, but that function in this dedicated special purpose way. That's the architecture of the human mind. Now, that's a substantive claim um, that I think uh, is not supported by the best evidence in cognitive science, including neuroscience, which is that the brain is not made up of dedicated special purpose systems in that way, the sort of Swiss army knife metaphor or the like, you know, apps on your phone metaphor. It's rather a densely interconnected system in which function emerges out of dynamical interactions and general purpose capacities for um, learning and for uh, self-modification under cultural scaffolding. So, that's why I think I, – I, I, and that's very much sort of the embodied cognition view, which I subscribe to, okay. which is very much opposed to the massively modular evolutionary psychology view. So that's what's going on in that part of the book in terms of my like critique of evolutionary psychology. Okay. Let me just read the part of your description that I think Lita wouldn't would buy into. It says, modules are defined as special purpose, innate programs that operate – more or less independently of each other, each module is thought to be associated with a specific neural structure. Now, if you mean, well, 
that module is there, that module is there, and that module is there, and these spatial, you know, structures, she, she would not say that. As for, um, you know, uh, uh, different modules draw on diff, on, on, a given module can draw on lots of parts of the brain. A given part of the brain can be drawn on by any number of modules. That's what, that's what she would say. Right. So, so she's evolved her position from originally asserting. I don't think she ever said that they were locally specific. I don't think she ever said uh, that. Well, my reading of their, of their first pass at this in the nineties was much more regional specificity. Now I think she says, um, that modules should be identified as um, functional entities that can draw on diverse regions of the brain. But still, the issue is that in order for it to be a module in their precise sense, it has to be a functionally specific dedicated system. And I think that the best models of brain connectivity at functional levels do not support that idea that there aren't modules in that sense. Yes, there is functional differentiation, but it isn't modular in that in that precise way. There's rather much more um, domain general processing and complex changing redistribution of functional profiles across interactions in a way that isn't modular in, in, in that sense of module. Mm-hmm. So this is an empirical issue. I could be right. I could be wrong. But that's my reading of the of the literature and the evidence. Okay. The, the other thing I'd quickly say is that where you say they operate more or less independently of each other, that's a view that I think is associated with Jerry Fodor. Last time I talked to Lita, she said she's actually quit using the word module because Jerry Fodor's conception of what a module is, and he isn't even particularly evolutionary in his origin. He's just a cognitive scientist right. uh, in his orientation. Right. You know, his idea of these walled-off modules is so far from hers that she's just quit using the term because people have get mixed up between her her view and his. So um, I think she she see anyway. This is a technical point. Um, I do I, I do quickly on the but just a couple of quick. Well, did you want to say something in response to that? Or, no, I mean I I mean I, I it, it's of course you know open to her to you know change and her and and evolve her and evolve her viewpoint and her and her terms. So that that's fine. I think um, I so so two points I would make. So first point is that it seems to me that um, evolutionary psychology means to be a distinct research program with with substantial distinct commitments, um, Mm -hmm. as any scientific research program does. And what defines it is a view that um, cognition is a matter of the functioning of special purpose dedicated mechanisms or systems. And that view is in tension or is opposed to a view that sees cognition as um, much more a matter of domain general systems and ones that are um, modified through uh, through culture and ontogeny. So that's that's where the difference lies. Mm-hmm. Now that's an empirical theoretical issue for scientists and philosophers to work out. How does this have anything to do with Buddhism? Um, there, I would say that the um, embodied approach. I think gives us a much more sophisticated way of talking about the role of culture and ontogeny in religion and in um, contemplative practice. And so that's why I favor it. And that's how it enters into the, into the discussion and why I'm not a Buddhist. That's just for the clarity of listeners. Yeah, I mean, like- again, what you say about culture 
where you say that the problem with evolutionary psychology, you know, a better view emphasizes the cultural transmission in human evolution and so on. Everything you say in that paragraph, I'm like, I think an evolutionary psychologist would be fine with that in principle. There may be extensions of it or applications of it you'd make that they wouldn't be fine with. I don't know. But the, the, the role of culture is certainly knowledge. The fact that humans have created culture that has actually changed the dynamics of natural selection itself, such as the invention of tools, no doubt about that. Um, I would, I mean, I'd say a couple of quick things in defense of, uh, the field. One is, um, you know, uh, the mind is in many ways, uh, malleable. I mean, one thing meditation is about is, is testing the limits of that and trying to change, uh, the way the mind operates in an environment in which certain of its tendencies are just not optimal. And you see if you can, you know, kind of do something about that. As for whether we are or not, you know, saddled with some unfortunate uh, residue of uh, a hunter-gatherer um, age of uh, phase of evolution, I mean, certainly we've all, we've probably all felt some version of something like road rage or at least feeling rage in a, in a, in a situation where it's just not doing you any good, could get you killed. It's just a bad idea. There are very plausible stories about how in an, in a, in a hunter gatherer society, rage is actually an adaptive, uh, thing. I won't get into them, but that's an example of how, you know, you can talk all you want about culture, but who among us has not felt counterproductive rage? One thing I like about meditation is that, it's an approach to dealing with the, with that. The fact that it's uh, often can be successful is is a, a confirmation of what you're saying. The mind is malleable, but uh, at the same time, I don't think we should minimize uh, the the depth of the challenge. A quick thing on modules is is um, the the what what the, the use that I put the modular the idea of the modular mind to is in arguing uh, that. Um, this it better captures the actual dynamics of mind than the idea of the CEO self and also helps explain uh, some things we observe in meditation when we start seeing seeming to see the generation of thoughts and so on. I argue that that's actually consistent with a modular view. And, and just to give let me just give a very commonsensical kind of example of what seems to be conflict between two modules. Uh, this is not a very sophisticated view. I, this is, doesn't come from lead or anything, but we probably all had the, the experience of being at a cocktail party. You're talking to someone. You want to be polite and keep talking to them. Maybe it's uh, your boss. You want to impress them. Maybe it's who knows. But you see the hors d'oeuvres and you're kind of hungry. Now, you can actually feel the competition for your motivational system. You feel this urge to go get some food. You feel this urge to, like, not offend this person. And and, and so that, that almost – you can almost feel two different kind of, quote, parts of the mind competing. And it is a fair surmise that these parts would have evolved at different points. The, the, the part of us that is attracted to food, the evolution of that began a long time ago. The part of us that wants to say things that uh, don't alienate uh, certain kinds of people, um, that presumably evolved more recently than the original kind of hunger drive, right? So that may be a trivial example, but 
uh, it seems to be one worth uh, even that experience is called is caused to take seriously the possibility that rather than thinking of this kind of unified uh, CEO self that uh, takes in the information and then makes a decision and then and then decides what to do actually uh, the motivational system is something that these subsystems compete for and attention and consciousness are things that these subsystems compete for and if you kind of step back you can actually witness the dynamics of that so now i i i i'll, I'll let you reply to that and then i will i will say nothing more i think in defense of either evolutionary psychology or the modular model yeah i, I mean i i think that uh we are complex entities we have um we have many different impulses. Those impulses compete with each other, conflict with each other, and sometimes we can have uh, access in our kind of monitoring awareness and consciousness to the conflict, and then we can, you know, try to regulate our behavior accordingly, and that's kind of like, you know, an executive function uh, type of thing to try to do. Um, of course, um, I personally don't think evolutionary psychology uh, is the right frame for that. Uh, I think, um, you know, we, I actually think we don't need evolutionary psychology to, to, to understand that, uh, even in just sort of everyday folk psychological terms in the, in the way that you just laid out. So, sure, we have conflicting impulses. Um, we can be pulled in different directions. We can try to course correct. We can try to um, inhibit one and, you know, attend. Uh, we, we can do all those things. And uh, the, the, the modularity of mind view doesn't really add anything to me uh, in, in terms of understanding that. It, it, it's, it's, it's not really – I don't really see it as actually relevant there because all of those things are accessible in the way you just described them actually to our um, – our conscious attention and our working memory and our planning. Uh, so they're actually all centrally accessible and we can, you know, then try to regulate our behavior accordingly. Yeah, and meditation right. may help with that. Certain kinds of practices may indeed help with that. Certain kinds of mindfulness practices may indeed, you know, make us better at noticing, uh, you know, impulses more quickly and at, you know, regulating our behavior in relationship to them. I wouldn't, I wouldn't deny that. And may give you a clearer view of the dynamics. Mm -hmm. Um, the dynamics as, as, as they kind of play out in your, in your experience, your sort of the phenomenological dynamics, as it were. Sure. Right. Yeah. That's possible. Okay. So before I ask you to say anything you want to say about the argument you haven't said, my final, uh, act of self-indulgence is just to say you, you, um, you kind of criticize my treatment of the concept of emptiness, which is a fundamental concept. As I, maybe I'm paraphrasing it wrong, as spending too much time on the psychology or, 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 and not appreciating that ultimately the idea of emptiness is a statement about the physical nature of, uh, about the nature of stuff out there, right? That, that, that it doesn't, yep. that objects don't, you know, uh, objects don't have essence, uh, and, and there's a philosophical, um, justification for that claim by Buddhism that has to do with, the degree of interdependence of different objects and interaction among different objects. So I just want to emphasize, I'm, 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 I'm quite aware of that. And I'm actually making a new argument on behalf of the doctrine of emptiness. That is a psychological argument. And, and it's an argument that 
if if you understand why evolution made us construct essence, impose essence on things, mm-hmm. that should undermine your confidence in your intuition that things have mm-hmm. essence. And I, I don't know if I spelled it out clearly enough. So if anybody's curious, mm-hmm. I'd say there's a footnote uh, on page 293 of my book that uh, is keyed to page 165. But I, I just wanted to I, – I, I, it's a part of my argument that I'm actually, um, you know, kind of happy with, and and uh, and I think maybe I didn't. I don't know if I didn't make it clear enough. There's a footnote there trying to spell it out. Um, yeah, no, I, I I think I think I understand the point, and I actually like that argument. Um, um, so let me let me sort of replay it to you to 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 see if you. Uh, if I'm getting the argument right, so um, one way to put it would be to say that you know we we there's a kind of certain cognitive default that we inhabit in terms of how we perceive the world. We perceive you know things as having kind of inherent natures, um, kind of being uh, being essentially what they are uh, as you know distinct individuals or discrete substances. And that has to do with how we are, in part, it has to do with how we're biologically configured. And, um, one of the, um, one of the ways to bring out the idea of emptiness is to show that, uh, that, that things are actually empty of that kind of identity and substantiality because it's not as if they really are the way that we are perceiving them by cognitive default that they they appear to be that way but that actually has to do with our kind of configuring them to be that way through our cognitive through our cognitive default so right yeah so i i like that argument i think it's i think you can run a kind of uh let's call it sort of cognitive psychology evolutionary biology argument for seeing the world that we inhabit as a kind of um construction in part out of our way of engaging with it and perceiving it with it, and we treat that as if it's independently real and having an essential mm-hmm. substantiality that actually it doesn't have, and that's precisely what the idea of emptiness is trying to you know right. articulate and get us to see in, in Buddhist terms. Yeah, so I, I like that idea. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm totally on board with that. And again, I'm arguing that the, the subtle role of essence in, in shaping perception plays a big role. I mean, the subtle role of feelings plays a big role in the construction of essence mm-hmm. and it really gets us into trouble in our dealings with like uh people we consider adversaries enemies nations in right. subtle ways it triggers these cognitive biases that lead to wars and so on so i think it's really uh, an important um yeah thing yeah the, I, com- the- I completely agree with that i'm i'm we have no disagreement there whatsoever <laughs> okay good so we can we can uh uh, not conclude on a note of concord, but uh, quasi conclude because I, the final thing I, I want to ask is just for you to um, talk about your argument as much as you want uh, in in terms of summarizing it or uh, highlighting things you don't think we've touched on. We've touched on a lot. I mean, we've yeah. we've covered pretty much uh, everything that 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 comes to mind. I mean, I guess I w- I, one thing I would say is, um, and, you know, it's open to the reader whether they, you know, whether they f- find this persuasive or, or you know, or, or, or feel it coming through for them. But I would say that, you know, I wrote the book, I mean, it's called Why I'm Not a Buddhist, but it, it comes out of a, a really long time engagement with, you know, Buddhist thought and Buddhist teachers. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I wrote it 
in a way that's meant to be kind of um, friendly criticism. So the, the, the idea is, you know, I, at one point I say in the book, you know, I'm not a Buddhist, but I want to be a good friend to Buddhas, to Buddhists. And so for me, the, the, the sort of real motivation for the book is to try to get modern Buddhists to um, get beyond these aspects of Buddhist modernism that I'm that I'm that I'm finding problematic. So it's not meant to be a rejection of Buddhism. It's meant to be, look, you know, as a good friend, you're saying some things as Buddhist modernists, particularly all around this Buddhist exceptionalism, that I just don't think work, that I don't think are helpful, that I think, you know, embed kind of confused ways of thinking about science and religion and about what Buddhism is. So I want to call you out on those, but I'm doing it because I want, you know, I want Buddhism to get this sounds presumptuous, but I want Buddhism to get beyond that and to to modernize in a way that's beyond those problematic ideas. So that's that's kind of like the deep motivation mm-hmm. for the book, just to you know, just to be clear yeah. about that. Well, certainly true. I can't imagine a, a book called "Why I'm Not a Buddhist." It's actually better informed in terms of Buddhism. You 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 know you 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 definitely uh, have immersed yourself deeply in um, in Buddhist teachings and also in non-Buddhist Eastern teachings. And uh, I, I think, I mean, one thing I don't get a lot of in the book, but you hear sometimes, I think legitimately, is people from, you know, what you could call Hindu or Vedanta traditions or whatever saying, hey, wait a second, we thought of that. You know, it's like there there is, Buddhism is more derivative of that tradition than some people uh, appreciate, I think. I mean, after all, the, uh, according to the, the history, the Buddha was born into that. But, um, so you bring all that to it, and... Um, and, you know, you're very well qualified to do that. Uh, we should maybe quickly mention this idea of cosmopolitanism, just at least mention the word because you right. can kind of conclude on that. And what you're calling for is a certain kind of cosmopolitan conversation involving Buddhism, um, which seems fine with me, I think, as I understand it. But Yeah, so the the sort of positive message of the book is a is a defense of cosmopolitanism in the specifically philosophical sense where it means that um, human beings all belong to one community and they are all equally deserving of uh, respect and dignity and that it's important to cultivate um, you could say humility of self in relationship to you know all other uh, all other human beings. This is, an, you know, an idea that comes in the Western philosophical narrative out of, you know, Stoicism, and then we see in, you know, thinkers like um, Kant and and Adam Smith, and then up to modern times with uh, with uh, Appiah, uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah, who's at New York University uh, philosopher, who's written very influentially about cosmopolitanism. Also, Marcel Nussbaum just has a new book out about cosmopolitanism. Um, and so, my my argument is that um, is that Buddhism has itself historically in India and China contributed to cosmopolitan societies, is doing so now in the modern world. This is, you know, something um, to support and encourage and that cosmopolitanism provides a, a philosophical perspective for seeing the differences between science and religion and working to uh to uh i suppose foster more harmonious and informed interactions between them beyond the you know the buddhist exceptionalist rhetoric so that's the last chapter of the book is kind of an affirmation of this cosmopolitan perspective okay great uh 
So it's called Why I'm Not a Buddhist, with, I guess, con- conscious reference to uh, Bertrand Russell's uh, Why I'm Not a Christian. Right. Uh, and I guess, uh, I imagine Russell... Of course, one difference is Russell was in a culture that was just full of Christians, and I kind of imagine him just right. getting slowly more and more fed up with things they were saying and finally having to write yeah. about it. You aren't in that. I mean, Canada, where you are, is not full of Buddhists, but at the same time, you. Know, you <laughs> okay. I, I, I mean, has it has there been a little of this, like over the years, more and more things said by different people, part of modern Buddhism, that you just felt you had to. Uh, Rebut. Yeah. And finally, here we kind are. Kind of. Kind of. I mean, it was. It was a. It was a. A combination of working things out for myself. You know, my own ambivalences, my own kind of conflicted allegiances, um, and writing is one way that I do that. Uh, but also a feeling that uh, I was becoming increasingly unhappy with a certain way that the 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 Buddhism science dialogue was going, and I and I wanted to call attention to that so it is different from you know i am of course alluding to russell because i'm a philosopher and you know i have great respect for russell as a philosopher but but it is different in that he really wanted to attack christianity and christianity of course had pernicious social power in the england of his time um and that's not our situation with buddhism and i'm not concerned to attack buddhism in the way that he wanted to attack christianity or indeed he wanted to attack religion in general and that's not what i'm doing yeah Yep. Okay. Great. Well, thanks. Uh, so people, you're on Twitter, right? People can find you. What is That's your right. Twitter handle? Well, uh, it's Evan T. Thompson. Evan, what's the middle so, of, letter? Uh, Evan T. for Timothy, Evan T. Thompson. Okay. And I'm at Robert Ryder, W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R. Uh, book is Why I'm Not a Buddhist. Um, I also encourage people to look at your uh, Waking Dreaming Being and uh, obviously The Embodied Mind. Uh, which you co-authored is relevant to this whole discussion. So, congratulations on on the book. And and you know, Thank I you. hope. I almost worry that we talked. I mean, this first of all, we, we pretty much set a record for length here, and I and I worry that <laughs> we've talked about so much that there isn't a good excuse to talk again, which would be too bad because I'd like to do it before terribly long. Yeah, so, I'd be happy to. Uh, I'd, okay, I'd be happy to talk again. Well, let uh, me let sure. me go through my markup of your book and see if there are grievances of mine that I have failed to air. <laughs> okay. Good, good, good. And that'll be next time. Okay, thanks, Evan. All right, thank you very much.